Uh, we had the spring equinox, uh, which occurred on March 20th this year, uh, two days ago on Thursday. And uh, as someone put it, we move forward now. Uh, the, the time of, of equal time has been basically reached, <clears throat> and the days start getting longer. I mean, not the days. Yeah, equal time, and now we'll have more daylight. Not, not, uh, we'll have more daylight than dark from here until in June. So the light is increasing this time of year. And perhaps that is a good thing. Uh, we should love dark, uh, Martin should love light more than darkness. Men tend to love darkness more than light because their deeds are evil. But as God's people, we should love light more than darkness. And it is after the spring equinox that we begin counting down toward Passover. That is the first key to God's calendar. Now understand that when God created the sun, the moon, and the stars, and in Genesis 1.14 told them to, us to use them as a calendar, that everything was very good. There was a 360-day year, as proven in Genesis 6, 7, and 8, where there were five months of 150 days, which cannot, be, uh, cannot happen in the present configuration of 365 and a quarter days. So when he created it, everything was very good. Everything was in balance and had perfect symmetry. And that's where we derive the 360-degree compass, one day for a point on the compass. And the equinox then would have marked, in those days, also the new moon, which would have started the first month. And as of last Thursday, this two days ago, we would be counting 14 days to Passover. Now, since Israel sinned and God changed it, and things have been confusing since. We reached the equinox, but we've not yet reached a new moon in conjunction with the equinox. It doesn't fall now that way. Back then, <clears throat> when that equinox occurred, there was right on that day a new moon every year. Never failed. It was in perfect order, perfect balance. But the scripture indicates that we have to have a new moon to start a month. Therefore, when the equinox comes and there's not a new moon on the equinox, we have to wait for a new moon in order to begin a new month. So this year we have to wait since the equinox has occurred. Days are getting longer than the nights. But, or I mean we're, we're moving into more daylight time, not, not equal. Well, it is basically equal on the equinox. That's what it means, equal. Uh, they start getting longer until June. But we're fa faced with the situation that we can't count 14 days from the equinox new moon. Now we wait for the new moon, which occurs uh, April 6th. So new moon day will be April 7th, and then we count 14 days till the evening of April 19th for Passover. But things are moving forward. <coughs> I will say this, I received a report this morning that was good, so to me so far it's been a good day, thank you. Uh, you know, we've been moving in a direction now for the last, well, basically 15 months, 
when we've begun to recognize the importance of the promised land as God gave it to Abraham and that this land of Ephraim is a part of that promised land and in fact is a very, very important part because Ephraim has been moved to the head as the firstborn, as God says in Jeremiah 31. It's not Reuben anymore, but Ephraim has been moved to the head of the line as the firstborn. God reckons that spiritually, and he is in a position to do that. So we are in the position of the firstborn, and the firstborn receive double blessings of an inheritance. And this land has been blessed above all lands on the face of the earth. We've begun to recognize that, that this is a very important part of prophetic events and of promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that very likely... The real, true, and original Jerusalem was in this land, in the land of Judah within Ephraim, uh, rather than in the Middle East, which is a bombshell. And perhaps it's been a little difficult for some to accept, and I can understand a certain amount of skepticism, because it is certainly a very large lump to swallow, and it will be for this world. But the report I received this morning uh, is... Additional proof, additional insight that indeed we are on the correct course. That what we are understanding is indeed the truth, not a deception as some might think. I'll not go into it any further than that. Uh, it, over the last year and three months, I have been privy to a lot of evidence, a lot of knowledge, a lot of observations, a lot of things that have happened and things that I have seen uh, that you have not been, for the most part, privy to see and hear and observe. So to me, I suppose in some respects, it's easier because I have a great backlog of information whereby when I reach one of those skeptical or depressed moments where I think, how could this be? And I'm sure we have all had them. Uh, I can review things perhaps more clearly than some can, having been exposed to more, and can quickly show myself that, yes, this is indeed true. And not only that, I have found more and more corroborating scriptures as time has gone by that just leap off the page to show that God is indeed working in this land, that this is the key area that all the end-time prophecies are centered around. Uh, Herbert Armstrong understood that in writing the U.S. and B.C. in prophecy and realized the United States was the key place for God's church and the key nation of the prophecies. He understood that. So what we're coming to understand is what he understood plus a great deal more detail and deeper understanding. Steve Collins wrote a book as a member of United, or I guess he's, he's certainly affiliated at least with them. I don't know how closely he's aligned. That isn't the point. But he has shown a great deal of research and insight into an Israeli a true Israel presence in this land over the centuries and thousands of years. 
to show that Israel indeed was here and that David and Solomon uh, mined here and up in around the Great Lakes and so on and other places. And someone said, well, that's what we're understanding and growing to see make what he shows wrong. No, it doesn't show it wrong at all. In fact, it confirms that the man is correct in a great presence of Israel in this land, and we are seeing that it's even greater than what he understood. The only thing that he is really missing, I, I, I don't know the only thing really, I mean, but a big thing that he is missing is direction. He feels Israel was over in the Middle East and then came here where I'm beginning to believe that Israel started here, went overseas, and then came back, having been banished. And that Jerusalem indeed was desolate for many generations with no one living there or passing through. There was no reason to go there. So I felt good this morning when I got a call and some confirmation, further confirmation, that what we have been considering and proving uh, is indeed correct. Now with this comes the story of Esther. Some have said, well, that was just for the Jews. Let's substitute another little word in there, a couple of words, and it might help make the meaning a little clearer. Let's, instead of say Jews, say God's people for the moment. Because Israel consisted of 12 tribes, later 13, and only one of those tribes were the Jews. But they were all God's people, were they not? They were all part of the original bride of Christ, were they not? Didn't he marry all Israel, including all 12 tribes? Yes, he did. Now, in this particular instance, the time of Esther and Ahasuerus, there was a man who hated the Jews, specifically, named Haman. And he did everything he could to have all the Jews destroyed. But as you know the story, the queen did not honor her husband, Vashti, and as a result was removed as being queen, and it was suggested that the king find a new queen, and it turned out to be a young virgin Jew named Esther. She didn't tell anybody she was a Jew. It wasn't a popular thing to be in those days in the kingdom of Persia, because there were enemies. But of all the young maidens that were brought before the king, he found Esther the most delightful. I think God had a hand in that. I think he had a hand in the whole scenario there. Why her out of maybe dozens or hundreds of young women that were gathered up from all over the land? I suspect that they were all very lovely, beautiful girls. They all probably had wonderful qualities, otherwise they would have not even been considered. Did God have a hand in choosing which beauty 
the king would light upon? I suspect that he did. There are parallels with the church today after it has been scattered and the king is coming. The Messiah will be back fairly soon. And all the splinter groups, uh, to use the analogy of young ladies, the virgins, as the Bible says, are seeking the approval of the king. And he says that he is going to select one. I'm not going to go to all the scriptures on this. We've been there before. The fairest of them all. Proverbs 31 talks about how one is found to be the fairest of them all. So everyone is in contention, and, and it creates contention between them at the same time, but I mean in contention or candidacy to be the fairest of them all. <clears throat> so each is waving her hand and saying, we are the best, we are the only, we are the fairest of them all. That's what's going on in the church today. You might notice that Esther did not take on any extra frills and decorations that were available to all those girls before they went to see the king. She only took that which was given her. She didn't try to make herself up to be something she was not. She tried to be what she should be and to be normal, to be natural, to be true and honest. And perhaps that showed more than some of the frills and lace and various things that others might have adorned themselves with to make themselves look artificially better than they actually were. There is no room for hypocrisy. We must be what we should be. We must be natural. We must be straightforward. We must be honest. We must be true. And those, those qualities then can show through. Hypocrisy, lying, cheating, trying to gild the lily, if you will, and make ourselves to look like something we are, are not, will not impress our king to come. He wants truth and honesty, sureness, that will shine forth like a light. And that's what he saw in Esther. I don't know that she was that much more physically beautiful, but she was natural and she was pure and her beauty was real. And perhaps that spoke out to the king more than those who might not have been that way and tried to present themselves as something that they truly were not. I think there is a great lesson in that for us, and I want to examine that somewhat today. <clears throat> because hopefully we are counted among the people of God by God. We certainly count ourselves among the people of God, do we not? And we hope that he accounts us as part of his people. He does talk about people in Hosea, the book of Hosea, who are not my people. And then Hosea is told to marry and to produce a child, and finally a people is set aside who truly are the people of God. No pretense, no hiding, no lying. They just are. And that's where we need to come to be. 
He tells us to put on the garments of righteousness to prepare for the wedding, just as Esther did. There will be enemies. There will be those who seem to be friends, but who are not. Matthew 24 talks about in the end time the love of many will wax cold and that there will be betrayers who will literally betray us to death. Do we want any among us who might not be true blue, who might have their own axe to grind, who might not be humble and teachable and true and honest and straightforward? It took quite a little, didn't it, to single out who Haman was and what his real attitude was. And he wound up hanged on a tree that he had made for another man, for Mordecai. So, Mordecai was true. Esther was true. And when the story progressed, that began to show. And those who were not true began to become evident as well. Now, this is a true story that has occurred throughout Israel in the past. Remember when they came out of Egypt? <clears throat> they said they'd look to God. They made a covenant with God. They said, anything you say, man, you're getting us out of Egypt. You're getting us out of slavery. We'll do anything you say. Whatever it is, whatever the cost, we will do it. You are God. And then... The moment they began to feel a little physical discomfort or didn't like the way things were going, they began to murmur and complain and gripe and backbite and diss Moses, put him down. It's just natural and human and normal among human beings who are governed by physical human appetites, by selfishness, by greed, by self-gain. It's just the way the carnal mind works. And they were carnal-minded. It's the only way their minds really could work, in spite of their protestations. Didn't Christ say that in his first bride, the fault was with them? And he made the new covenant with better opportunity and better promises. He gave us his spirit so that we could learn to walk in the spirit, not be governed by selfish flesh. And that through his spirit, we could become what we are not. Now I have seen over the years the tragedy of individuals who grew up in God's church. Maybe were born into it, just as I was born into the Methodist church and grow up in the church, quote-unquote, who have quite a bit of head knowledge about the truth of God, and yet do not understand. Ever learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the real truth. Never having a mind that is converted from physical carnal thinking and appetites 
to one that is being led by the Spirit of God that actually changes. Conversion means what? What do you do when you convert water from water to steam? You change it. Now that vapor goes up in the air, and it could remain changed into steam, or under certain conditions it will recondense and come back down. And God says that is a very dangerous thing if we are one thing and are changed and go back. He calls it a sow to her wallow and a dog to his vomit is the analogy he uses. So when we are converted, changed, or as Romans 12.1 puts it, transformed, a transformation is to occur. But I grew up in the church, and I fought it myself. I think I have changed some. You may not think so, but boy, you don't know me back when. But I have seen people who grew up in the church who were supposedly converted, were baptized, but never changed. They kept thinking the same way they had always thought. And it is kind of tragic in a way that you're trying to be something that you're not. You're trying to act converted, but you aren't. You try to act like a Christian, and yet you don't have the Spirit of God. That puts you in a very, very bad position, a very difficult circumstance, because you know kind of what's right, and yet you're not committed, heart, mind, body, and soul, to doing it, to living it, and to walking in the Spirit of God. Maybe you could call it a false conversion. And those Israelites who, as you might put it that way, swore on a stack of Bibles that they would do everything God said, very, very quickly turned from that and just continued right on with their carnal, selfish way of thinking. They were not transformed. And in fact, God winnowed them out made them wander 40 years in the wilderness. Now, during that wandering, I think he was very patient, don't you? Their shoes and clothes didn't wear out. They had food coming from the heavens. They had protection from any enemies that might be around and from beasts of the field. God led them in the direction he wanted them to go with a cloud and a fire by night. But they never, ever changed their attitudes. They just kept going. Now, God gives space and time and opportunity to repent, does he not? God is very fair that way. But at some point, there will be a line drawn in the sand whereby we either have to have made the changes or we will not be selected. Now, those young ladies presented themselves to the king probably in a vast array of different decorations trying to make themselves look like the very best. But the real character did not shine through like it did in Esther. 
And I think that that must have been the dividing line. The honesty that shone out of her eyes. Because in physical beauty, there's certainly a limit to how pretty you can get. So it had to be an inner beauty that he saw, a character that he saw. That's what God is looking for in us, brethren. I want to go to Acts 5 for a moment. Well, let's, yeah, let's go there. It ties in with what we just discussed about Israel in the wilderness. In that story, as you well know, God said, your children will go in, but none of you will, save Joshua and Caleb. Uh, They had given a good report, not a false report. So God included them to go across the river. Even Moses, who had had a character lapse for a brief moment, was not allowed to go in. Uh, What that tells me is that God is very serious about these things. Moses was a friend of God. That's not said about many people in times past. God called him his friend. Moses is a man who honored God, obeyed God. But in a moment of carelessness, his attitude got away from him. He became presumptuous and arrogant and not humble and meek, as he tended to be from day to day. So instead of speaking, he struck the rock. And God didn't let him go into the promised land as a result. Physically. Oh, he'll be in the kingdom of God. But I think that that prevention of him going into the physical promised land was probably done for us. Certainly wasn't necessarily done for him because he's going to be in the kingdom of God. He's listed in the faithful in Hebrews 11. But God wants us to be what we ought to be. Now in Acts 5, you're familiar with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. What were the circumstances here? It was a time that God was building a church. It was a time of great miracles, which we saw back in Acts 2. Holy Spirit coming as cloven tongues of fire. People being healed with the very shadow of the apostles passing over them. A time of great spiritual renewal in the land as God began his new covenant with his people. Many of them Jews, and shortly thereafter many of them Gentiles as well, by blood, who became one and the same through the Spirit of God. But they had a time of crisis, a time of dearth in the land, a time when everything wasn't going well and everyone did not have enough to eat. So they decided for that short period of time they would have all things in common, that everyone would sell what they had and bring it and lay it at the apostles' feet so they could be equally and evenly distributed among the people and everyone could have food to eat and perhaps a place to stay and opportunity to survive. In other words, there had to be a unity of spirit, there had to be a togetherness, there had to be a pulling together of individuals who were willing to sacrifice any and everything they had for the good of everyone. We will be facing those times again very shortly. And we had better be of a converted spirit and mind 
truthful, honest, open, ready to serve, ready to give, ready to do one for another, that we all be unified in spirit and purpose and mind. Now, there was among those people a man and his wife who essentially agreed, pretty much went along, were part of the church, considered themselves part of the church, but they held a certain amount back. They were not fully, 100% committed to the purposes, the needs of the body, as Christ had formulated it. They saw among the apostles and among the brotherhood, the members, those that they thought were a bit out of step or couldn't respect or didn't have their heart fully in it. So when it came time to sacrifice themselves and what they had as a living sacrifice for the good of the whole, they were 80% there, weren't they? 70, 90, whatever it was. I don't know what percentage they held back. But they sold their house and they made an agreement between the two of them that they would say they sold it for, pick a number, 80,000, when they really sold it for 100,000. They weren't fully, totally, wholly committed. On some level, they were still be, being ruled by the appetites of the carnal flesh. Selfishness, greed, holding back some for me. Now that attitude can be expressed in many, many ways and probably will be in the troubles that are to come upon the church and the world. What if, in Esther's day, you had had some who said they were Jews but were not? What if you had had some that were lying? What if you had had some who had been willing to turn in their brother or their sister? What if you had some that were not fully true and honest, true blue, but still had a certain amount of carnal selfishness there? You know... Human beings, by nature, will allow others to be hurt so that they themselves may be comfortable. Just That's just the way it is with human nature. And they'll try to be friends of everyone, but their true attitude is not always apparent. Now, you may have experienced as I certainly have in different places over the years. People who want to be friends with everybody. You know, and everybody doesn't agree. And when you try to be friends with everybody, at some place along the line, you will compromise your integrity, you will compromise your beliefs, you will compromise the truth in order to be liked by everyone. I have seen people 
vying for being a deacon or an elder or whatever their goal and purpose might have been. And they'd walk on people to get what they wanted. Now, if you try to be friends with everyone, you know what's going to happen? You're going to get your toe in a crack. You can try to be friends with those at the top, and you will incur the animosity of those at the bottom. If you try to incur the favor of those at the bottom, you will find yourself in a crack with those at the top. Because the two do not meet unless there is repentance somewhere and humility and meekness. No man can serve two masters. You cannot be friends with the world and friends with God at the same time. Nor can you be friends with those who are in a descending attitude and those who are striving with all their heart to do what's right. You can't be with both because you will be put in compromising positions and you will be frustrated. We have to make a choice sometimes. Well, Ananias and Sapphira agreed with the church, but they kept a certain amount of understanding personal. They had their own views. They had their own ideas. They were pretty much with the program, but not all the way there. So they just made a deal. Let's go ahead and give them this much, and we'll tell them that's the way it is, because that's what they want to hear but at the same time, we'll hold a certain amount back for ourselves. So that's the lie they told. And God struck them both dead. Ananias came in first and told the lie and fell down dead. Now God is a merciful God, and when Sapphira came in not knowing what had happened to her husband, she was asked, was this so? She, individually, was given an opportunity. And I think God was making a separation there. Before God, each of us has to make our own way. God does not judge a man by his wife, nor does he judge a wife by her husband. He judges us all individually. So they were both given opportunity to see which way they would go. Now, Herbert Armstrong said many, many years ago that one of the biggest frustrations he saw was that women almost invariably would do what their husband did because they felt that they ought to obey husband rather than God. Now, they might not have said that outright, but emotionally, that's the way they felt. I have to obey my husband. Now, that is true. But your spiritual husband, your king to come, is the one you put number one. Obey God rather than man. Your physical husband is to be obeyed and followed 
so long as he follows God's way and our king to come, our husband-to-be. But the moment he deviates from that path, a woman is bound and determined by God to follow her spiritual husband rather than her physical husband. You must make correct spiritual sources, ladies. I don't care what your emotions and how long you've lived with it. 30, 40, 50 years does not matter. God is first. And when Sapphira did not stand up for the truth, but followed her physical husband, she fell dead immediately. Where are our deepest values? How deep is our commitment to Almighty God. God is going to find out. What did he say of Abraham? Now I know. He has to know the same, about, the same thing about every one of us men. And he has to know the same thing about every one of you ladies. You will not go into the kingdom of God through your husband, nor he through you. Ezekiel 33 makes it very clear that God will judge each and every one individually. Were that not so, God would not have called some men and some women individually and not called their mates. And this is a very, very important point with God. Truly important. Because as, sancti as sanctified as marriage is, and with as little opportunity legally for divorce in Scripture, God makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 7, if he calls one, man or woman, into his truth, to become the bride of Christ. If the physical mate, man or woman, does not let you obey God in peace, you have the right and perhaps even the commission to leave them and obey God and put Him first. and that you are in such cases not any longer bound physically in that marriage to them. The biblical criteria generally is until death do us part. An exception is made for porneia, which is sexual sins, in which God says that covenant is broken. And you can either forgive and accept or you have every right to divorce and not be bound to them and remarry only in the Lord. The only exception he makes. Except that he takes the responsibility himself for calling only the woman or only the man and they must stand individually before him. I don't think I could emphasize this too much. 
I even noticed years ago, and I think I've mentioned this before, maybe you heard it, maybe you didn't, but in the years when the church was really, really growing rapidly, uh, in the 60s, when I was pastoring down in Florida in the Bahamas, I noticed a trend. I'd go out to visit people, and it seemed like, I don't have an exact percentage, but it seemed like 80-85% of the time, it was the woman that was interested and not the man. She would be interested in the truth, and the husband would be the skeptic and sometimes the enemy. And I puzzled over that, but I think I figured out the answer. It is very, very hard, as Herbert Armstrong said, for a woman to go against her husband to obey God. So God calls the woman first, and she has to stand up for God, usually against her husband. She has a trial and a test there. And then later on, as so often happened, God would open the man's mind. Now that put him into a trial and test situation, because now he had to swallow his masculine pride, his ego, and all those nasty, persecuting statements he had made against her, they all had to be swallowed, and he had to eat crow feathers and all, and humble himself before God and his wife. Tough for men to do. If God called the man first, it was fairly easy for the woman to follow along. Was she converted? I don't know. In some cases, no. Hadn't been tested. Hadn't had to stand for God against her own mate. I think that's the reason God did that. He wanted to know what that woman was made of spiritually. But I think that shines forth in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. I never even looked at this this way before. But there is a separation here. They were addressed separately and individually to see if they would put God first or not. But they were both lying hypocrites. They said one thing and did another. Now, God does not like that. I think that's fairly well evidenced here, isn't it? Bam, hit the ground. Pretty well tells the story. Of course, any time you mention Korah or Achan or any of those who rebelled against Moses or God in the past, and somebody has a negative wrong attitude they're immediately going to say, well, you think I'm Korah? How many times have I heard that over the last five decades and more? You think I'm an Ananias and Sapphira? I don't think anything necessarily. I just think if we have that kind of an attitude, it's going to come out. And probably the reason is they have a sneaking suspicion they do have that attitude. Whether they'll fully admit it or not, I don't know. Now, does this story of Esther fit today or does it not? 
we are going to have great persecution ahead, and it says that there will be people who will betray us and deliver us to be killed, thinking they do God a service. And it says many will forsake the spiritual covenant there in Revelation 11, Daniel 11, and will turn in and betray one another. So it's talking about church members. Just as Jews were betrayed by those who claimed to be righteous. Notice Romans 4 right here in this area. Romans 2. Romans 2. Verse 28. Talking about circumcision and whether it means anything or not, physical circumcision. And Paul is making it clear, verse 28. For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. The Jews physically circumcised little boys, but he said that isn't the true test. Now, physically in Israel it was a test originally, but in the New Testament that isn't the test. He is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit and not in the letter or the flesh, whose praise is not of men, but of God. We're not here to be praised by men. We're here to be praised by God. And we're to be honest and true and have character as Esther had. So the physical Jews that walk the face of this earth today, whether they be true Jews or mixed Edomite Jews or converted to Judaism or whatever, are not the Jews that God gives value and credence to. It is the spiritual Jew that is important today. It is the one that is a Jew inwardly and of the heart. Notice Galatians 6. Galatians 6. Uh, here I want verse 15. For in Christ... Neither circumcision avails anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And you might say that that infers is everything. Physical circumcision is nothing, but a new creation is everything. Being transformed, being changed, not thinking carnally, humanly anymore, but thinking in the spirit. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. Now he goes on to explain. Let's see, I want to go here while we're here to Romans 9 as well. Romans 9. Down in verse 25. Well, it's verse 24. Even us whom he has called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So the Gentiles were not people who physically circumcised. But God said they could become circumcised in heart. And that made them true Jews. Spiritual Jews. Real Jews. Not those who are just Jews of the flesh. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people. I referred to that a little bit earlier. 
where he says, these are not my people by the names of the children. But then it turns around and says, these are my people, those that will follow his ways and do what he says and be committed, be transformed, be changed. Which were not my people, and her beloved which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Then he says Isaiah. He quotes who? He quotes Hosea, and he quotes Isaiah. To whom? The New Testament church, believe it or not. Now some people say we need to spend all our time in the New Testament. The Old Testament doesn't mean anything. But I'll tell you what, Paul quotes the Old Testament writers over and over and over again. And here talking about who is the true spiritual person and a true Jew of God, he quotes Hosea and Isaiah, of all people. Isaiah also cried concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. Not most, but a remnant, a small bunch. Now later on, chapter 11 of Romans says all Israel shall be saved. But there he's talking about the millennium and the second resurrection, the great white throne judgment. But right now, only a remnant. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will eternal make upon the earth. And he said it would be like Sodom and Gomorrah, unless God intervened. The church is quickly shriveling, as Ezekiel 17 says, and disappearing, and God is going to save out a faithful remnant to bless and make a light to the world. Esther was a light that shone in the kingdom of Persia. She shined among the Gentiles, as did Mordecai, when the truth were really known. Their character, their belief, their lives shone as a light to the whole Gentile world. The kingdom of Persia at that time went clear to India and all across Eurasia. and their light shined across all that area. God has called us to be a light in this end time, to shine before the whole world, all the kingdoms of the Gentiles, and even those who say they are spiritual Jews, but are not. I find it very interesting, personally, that we have the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and they show the building of the temple and the building of the walls of Jerusalem in that order, and that King Ahasuerus, the husband of Esther, was the king to whom Nehemiah petitioned that Jerusalem be built back. And I find it very interesting that the book of Esther immediately follows the book of Nehemiah in the Bible in the way, the order that it is presented to us. Because when we set forth to build the temple in this end time, and we set forth to build Jerusalem in this end time, as I think the scriptures are indicating must be done, spiritually certainly, and physically probably. I'll still put a probably on that, though I'm becoming more and more convinced by the minute. But right after those stories showing 
those two activities done. You have the story of enemies that have to be overcome. The peril of life is involved. And the true character of Esther and Mordecai were used to save the body of Jews. And it is only through a leadership at this end time and a true faithful remnant who have true character, grow, who overcome, who actually change and do not continue to walk by carnal appetite and selfishness, who are willing to give their all, even their own life. It is those whom God is going to use to save a remnant of his church and to set a light to the whole world. What an incredible opportunity to possibly be a part of that. And if we understand it, God is giving us an opportunity to be part of it. Individually, man, woman, child. We need to be truly converted so that the light of God and true character shows out our eyes. No lying, no conniving, no hiding. Why do we hide our true character? Why do we hide our true objectives? Because our deeds are evil. Our thoughts are selfish. They're carnal. And God has very little patience with that. He does give us space and opportunity to repent. There comes a time, however, when he does take a hand. Let's go to Ezekiel 20. Ezekiel 20. And here, let's pick the context up a little bit. It's Ezekiel, as we saw as we were starting through this book, we haven't finished it yet, but we got through chapter 21. And I kept remarking over and over again that through this context, it says that they might know that I am the Eternal. It says it over and over and over and over again. So it's almost uh, boring and redundant. But God is making a point here that Ezekiel is addressing the time at the end of the age when all mankind is going ultimately to know that God is God. And in Ezekiel 5, he addresses Israel, and he says that one-third will die of famine and pestilence, one-third of the sword, and one-third into captivity, and most of them would die in captivity. Now, we have applied this spiritually to the church, and I think that it is valid. And we have seen now, as a matter of history, before our very eyes, many, many, many dying of famine and pestilence on a spiritual level, going back where they came from to wallow in the vomit of this world. And we have seen many who, because of the confusion, bad teaching, poor leadership, and poor brotherhood and example have just died on the vine, withered up, and quit altogether. 
and we see some being taken back into the captivity of this world. It's sad what we have seen. And now we live on the threshold of a time when not only the spiritual house will be torn down, but the physical house of Israel is headed the same direction. I want to tie about, before we go too far here in Ezekiel 20, I want to put a few scriptures together to show that the prophecies are dovetailing, that these things are coming together now. Let me find here, I, I do have some scriptures written down, I'll get to them. Well, let's, while we're here, uh, let's go to Ezekiel 7. Ezekiel 7. Well, no, let's finish in Ezekiel 20. I want to finish this thought and then move on. I'll make up my mind here, if any. Uh, Ezekiel 20, uh, God says that we have abominations in our eyes and we defile ourselves with the idols of Egypt in verse 7 of chapter 20. And God hates the abominations. He says it will begin to take his Sabbath lightly down in verse 12. God's Sabbath and Sabbaths have always been a sign since Exodus 31 between God and his people. And to take those lightly in any way is a scary proposition. And Ezekiel talks about that here in this chapter. Verse 20 says, Hallow, that is, make holy my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Eternal, your God. Now, God's people understand His Sabbaths, and we must take care of them very, very carefully. God is making that point here. He does not like it when people pollute His Sabbaths into verse 20. Now, he makes a big point of this when he says at the end of verse 26, to the end that they may know that I am the eternal. He says it again. Now let's go down to verse 34, or verse 33. As I live, or I'll swear by myself, says the eternal God, surely with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with my fury poured out will I rule over you. Now we have felt the anger and the chastening of God in the church. And this nation is about to begin to feel it as well. And I will bring you out from the people and will gather you out of the countries wherein you are scattered with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out. So God says the first with the church, he is going to begin to pull out a faithful remnant from all over the countries. Later, of course, in the millennium, he'll do it with physical Israel. I will bring you into the wilderness of the people. Draw his people into a wilderness area. And there will I plead with you face to face. This thing is going to increase in intimacy with God. Who will stand when he begins to make himself more known? Read Malachi 3 and 4. Like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. He pleaded with them, please obey me, please. He gave them opportunity. I will plead with you, says the eternal God. 
and I will cause you to pass under the rod. Now I'm, I'm going to start calling people out. I'm going to plead with them. I'm going to give them every opportunity. But there comes a point where you have to pass under the rod. You have to be approved. There comes a point when I'm not going to put up with your lying hypocrisy anymore, and you must be true blue. Read Ananias and Sapphira. They were 80% there, weren't they? Or 70 or whatever the percentage was. I imagine they kept back a pretty good percentage. They had to probably give enough of the sale of their house so that it was somewhere near market value, otherwise the lie would have been seen immediately. You know, if you got a $100,000 house, you say you got 10000 for it, somebody's going to say, huh? But if you say you got 90 for it, and you got 100 eh, you might get a buy with it. So I think they had to declare a pretty high percentage. But the point is, they were holding back, and they were lying hypocrites. They were not totally honest and true. We have to pass under the rod. God will be patient. He will be merciful. But at some point, we will be called to account. I'll, I'll cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. You will either live by the covenant or you will not. When you were baptized, you said, I am putting my hand to the plow. I will not turn back. I have counted the cost. I will give my all. I will become a living sacrifice. I will be transformed by the Spirit of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will not walk by the carnal appetites of the flesh anymore. That's the bond we made. And God is going to call us under the bond of the covenant. How much? do we hold back from God and from his people? How much do we reserve judgment to ourselves of our brethren and our ministry? How much? I think the king would have chosen someone else if he had not looked into Esther's eyes and seeing truth and honesty and character there. I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me. I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Eternal. I believe that God is going to do a work in the desert, in the wilderness. I believe he is going to draw a faithful remnant together. I believe that he is looking for honest and true people who do not hold back to themselves, who do not lie, and who do not pretend, and are not hypocrites, as Ananias and Sapphira were. And I believe with all my heart that we must become that or God will purge us out 
He will not allow those who have negative, rebellious, self-congratulating, vain, proud attitudes to be part of it. He will purge out the rebels. And I pray that my heart will be true and that I will not have to be purged from God's people. And I pray that you will be true and not have to be purged. Now at the beginning I said that I received some good news, and I did. It may not be news that would prove anything to a skeptic, but it confirms a lot to me. And I believe that God, soon, based on what I see happening in this world, and it's slide now into oblivion, just as the church slid into oblivion, is very near, and may have already commenced based on what I see happening. And I believe that God is going to make a movement to begin to gather his people very soon. And he wants true blue, honest esters among us. He does not want liars, thieves, drunks, adulterers, Sabbath breakers, He wants people who will be absolutely faithful to him and to his word. There is no room for rebellion. There is no room for negativity. There is only room to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, with all our heart. I was going to go to a few scriptures to show I'll quote them to you quickly. Amos 5.11, Isaiah 5.9, Zephaniah 1, about verse 12 or 13, somewhere in there. Ezekiel 7, verse 24. To show that in this land our houses will be taken away from us. Every one of those verses says that we'll build houses but not inhabit them, or that our houses will be taken away from us and will be made desolate. And the reason I wanted to make that point is this. We're in a situation now where we've had a housing bubble that was created on purpose to inflate the economy, to keep things moving. But housing bubbles and all kinds of financial bubbles bust or burst if you're into English. And we are now facing that. But the common thread of Amos, of Zephaniah, of Isaiah, of Ezekiel, are the same. In other words, those prophecies are here and now. They are prophecies of this day and age, of our time. And they're scattered through the prophecies of the Bible, and all those prophecies of all those men are right now, this very day, coming to pass. 
And that means that all these prophecies are now coming to pass so that we, as a church, may know that God is God. And when God uses an end-time people like he did Esther and Mordecai to show the whole world that God is God, these prophecies will be finished. And you and I have an opportunity to be part of that. We have an opportunity to be a light to the world. We have an opportunity to be honest and true and walk by the Spirit of God in character rather than by our flesh. We have an opportunity to worship God with our whole heart and not hold anything back. One of the commonest ways that men show their disdain and rebellion against God is by, a, by speaking against those whom God has sent. God told Samuel, they're not rejecting you, Samuel, they're rejecting me. They didn't they reject David, they rejected God. David had his problems, didn't he? But in rejecting the one God had made king, they rejected God. People have rejected Herbert Armstrong. And I believe he was a man used of God. He wasn't a perfect man, he had his problems. Those have been pointed out over and over and over again. And some of them might have been pretty bad. I don't know whether they were true or not, and I could care less. I see the fruit of God in the man's life and the truth of God there in a right spirit and attitude, and I believe God used the man. And we wouldn't know the truth today if he hadn't. Was he perfect? No. Now we had better search out, because I will guarantee you, through the Word of God, that he has promised and sworn by himself that he will provide those who will come with their feet shod with the gospel of truth. And they will not come unless God has sent them. That's scripture quoted in the Old Testament in Isaiah are written in Isaiah and quoted by Paul and Romans. It's a fact. Now, you have a challenge. You had better find, and you had better search until you find, those whom God has sent. And when you find them, you had better believe them. And you had better do what they say. Now you can be carnal and say nobody's going to tell me what to do until God breaks your knees if you're that stubborn. Now I'm not telling you where that is or who it is. I'm telling you, God says he will send them. And if God said he would send them, you had better find them. 
Now, you can all get up and walk right out of here and go do that if you want. If you don't believe this is the place that God is beginning to do that, you had better, for God's sake and your sake, get up and walk out. If you have not proved the message that is being given here to be the truth, please, please, and I'm not being sarcastic, I'm being absolutely honest. If you haven't proved that, do yourself a favor. Please go away from here and find where God is speaking through men. He always has. Invariably, every age, he always has spoken through men. Men get very upset when it turns out not to be them. And they diss and talk behind the back of and stab in the back anyone who is given any approval by other men is speaking the truth because they're jealous and selfish and greedy and they want to be the ones God uses. That is pride. That is ego. That is arrogance. And God resists the proud and gives grace to those who are truly humble. If you are convinced you are hearing a message from God, from me, from Gordon, from Nelson, from Bill, Terry, then listen and believe and understand and support and help and let's be unified and grow together. But if you're not convinced and you're 80% or 90% there, but you're holding back a certain lying hypocrisy, please go where you can have confidence and belief that you're hearing the words of God. You need to be in a climate where you can grow, where you can overcome, where you can change. And if for any reason you have a resentment you can't get over toward me or toward any of these other men who speak, and you think that God is not guiding and leading us into truth, I'm not saying we have all truth yet, and I'm not saying any of us are perfect by any means and me the least. Because I know me. And as I'm subject to sin and human nature as anybody on this earth. And I fight it daily. Because I am not by nature righteous. I am not by nature willing to obey God. I am by nature ready to follow carnal, human attitudes, 
and appetites and weaknesses just as much as any other man on earth. But I pray that by the Spirit and the power of God, I can overcome and I can grow and I can change. Now come on along and let's do that. But if you don't think that this is the place that God is working, then you owe it to yourself and your salvation to go find that. Because the Word of God guarantees, brethren, that it will happen. It guarantees it. It will happen. He will send those in the end time who will speak the truth and give you a true message. There will be Esthers. There will be Mordecai's. There will be true blue. Esther wasn't perfect. Mordecai wasn't perfect. They're human beings. But they were honest and true. And God used them to save his people. And God is going to do the same thing again. I keep Purim because there's a powerful spiritual message there, and it's in the Bible, and it follows Ezra and Nehemiah and the commission that God has given the end-time gathering to do. That's why I keep it. So let's be honest. If you're frustrated and upset and negative and do not feel you're in a climate where you will be fertilized and watered and told the truth and give you an opportunity to grow and overcome and to be a virgin bride of Christ, if you can't believe in and trust the people and the message they bring here, then really, you should go and search out and find those whom God has sent. Now, if that leaves us with four or five or six or seven or eight or ten here, that's okay. It's okay. I believe what I teach you with all my heart. And I'm here because I do believe it. And I will continue to repeat it. But if you don't have faith and confidence in it, and the message that you're hearing, please go. Do not stay. And find a place where you can grow. Because if we are going to be in the kingdom of God, we must grow and overcome and change and be different than what we have been. We must be transformed. It does not come easy. Now, I believe God has given us a lot of information. I believe he's giving us information right now that is going to lead to some pretty important things happening. Don't talk against it. Even if you're skeptical, you don't fully believe it yet, give it a chance. But if the message of growing and overcoming and being like God, which is really what undergirds this whole ministry, if that's not there, 
you need to find where it is. Give everything a chance. God has given you a chance. But be it known, if you're lying in your heart and there's hypocrisy in you, God will purge you. But if you're true, if you're honest, if you're working daily to grow and overcome and walk in the Spirit, God will bless, God will preserve, God will help. Have a good day.